All right, welcome back to another episode of Developing Communities, the DevRel podcast. As always, I am here and joined by growth hacker extraordinaire from Pony Code, the Alexandra. <laughs> and today we have uh, a new guest uh, with us today. Very exciting, Philippe Ozil. And uh, I'll get you to maybe introduce yourself and say a few words, Philippe. Hi, Alex. How am I, Kenzie? Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Philippe Ozil. I'm a developer advocate at Salesforce at the moment. I've been in the space for uh, close to a decade, which is kind of old in our in our job. Um, before that, I was a consultant, and even before I started my career uh, as a developer, so I had a, the chance to play with various fields, but always around uh, software. So that was my passion first before getting into business, but that's really what I love, coding and sharing knowledge with people. That's all I'm about. Cool. That's awesome. I think I think a decade ago, it, it's so interesting to see. It's such a new area that um, was it. What you know, like was it still around the the world of like advocacy when when you started in this, or was it definitely it something not. that's kind of yeah. Yeah. The, the word advocacy didn't really exist before. That we were talking more about evangelists, and I've noticed the trend. People are upgrading their job titles. We did that also at Salesforce. We were first a developer evangelist, and we moved as developer advocates. And I think uh, there were nuances that came and uh, most of the time, I think now people are moving to advocacy. That's what I've noticed. I've, uh, in my contract, I'm a developer evangelist and I first put this as my title, but then everyone kind of thought that I was a developer and then a religious evangelist as well. So <laughs> I, I got some very confusing messages on LinkedIn. It took me a while to, to, to realize, so I, I changed to an advocate. Yeah, actually, I, I didn't know that. If evangelist is like, purely disappearing because of the religious connotation or is there like a proper difference between an evangelist, a, a, an advocate? A, a... So fun fact, it happened to me that I got reached out by a pastor, someone who oh. thought I was like leading a church or something. So yeah, I can totally relate to what you said. And in terms of, uh, I would say the meaning of the word, I would say evangelist, for me, the problem is that it's pretty much a one-way conversation. It's mm. like us, the professionals, talking to the crowd, but we're not really listening back. And that's mm. why advocacy came, I think, because it's more like a conversation. Your job as an advocate is also to convey feedback from the community back to your own engineering teams, your marketing teams, to the other people in the company that are also listening to you. Actually, that, that kind of answers uh, half of the question we usually ask uh, first to our guests. Uh, which is a uh, developer advocate is very different depending on the size uh, of the company. Uh, sometimes uh, it, it depends, it differ from a company to another. So what, uh, what's a developer advocate at Salesforce? How many of you are there? And what, what is kind of the structure of advocacy uh, in your company? Okay, vast question, but uh, I think there there will be some similarities to with your previous uh, episode with Microsoft. Uh, we're a very large corporation, so obviously we have a lot of different products, and uh, some of some of our colleagues advocates are specialized in certain products. But in my own uh, little sphere, uh, I'm working on the Salesforce platform, which is the core offering. We got several acquisitions since then, but the core of the platform. Uh, and we're a very small team, actually. We're, we're just, uh, I think we're eight at the moment for now. But we are leveraging a lot of resources in other teams. I mean, we are eight full-time advocates, but we have other helpers from the engineering teams that we, we help and that are also helping us. So it's not a, our, um, 
I think it's really not the same scale as, as uh, you would have in other large corporations. But also it's because maybe we don't have a, a um, I would say, a, a broad range of technology that, that target developers. I think the core of the product is a bit smaller than the, the, the number of things you would have, for example, on, on the other uh, Google, Amazon, Facebook, etc. It's, it's interesting you say that. I mean, I know of a lot of people that uh, built entire startups just around Salesforce as an, a Salesforce plugin. Um, so, you know, so it's, it's interesting the, the, the area that, that you have. And I, I could just, the, what Salesforce can do is so wide and so broad. How do you, in a relatively small team, like get, even get your head around kind we of can't. all the different areas? Yeah. We, we can't. There's simply no single person that masters all the different products of the Salesforce stack because there are so many of them. There's acquisitions. We're we're constantly evolving. So that's why we have different teams that are operating around different um, technologies. And really, uh, if you just look at the recent acquisitions, uh, Slack, Tableau, we, they also have their own developer advocacy teams. We partner with them, but they're the experts in their particular fields. We don't have a single person that can, uh, yeah, can, can master all of these different stacks. There's so many of them. We do know what they, the other products do, but we're not like experts on all of these different technologies. Yeah, I can't even imagine the, the just, you know, the first day at Salesforce as an advocate kind of opening up the platform and going, okay, <laughs> where do we start? <laughs> exactly. exactly. It's also great because it's also giving us a great opportunity to learn and to, mm. to evolve in terms of career. Because, for example, if we decided one day that we know everything there is to know about a given product, well, we can move uh, in the organization on another developer advocacy team if we want to keep in the uh, developer advocacy roles. So it's pretty powerful. And what's kind of your, your, your core interest in there? Like what's the, the, the core developer users that you're targeting at Salesforce and kind of what, what, are, they, what are they doing and how, how do you reach out and communicate with them? Uh, good question. So there are different profiles of developers uh, for sure. Historically, I would say uh, most of the developers working on the Salesforce platform were more backend developers. Uh, there's um, a backend uh, programming language that runs on the Salesforce platform that is called Apex, uh, like the video game, by the way, <laughs> which is pretty confusing. But uh, And this is very close to Java. So you would say most of them were Java developers, or kind of. And nowadays, the shift is a bit, uh, things are changing, basically. Uh, we're turning more into front-end development, so there are more and more uh, JavaScript developers that are uh, being brought. And that's because we uh, leverage and we publish a couple of frameworks for building front-end frame uh, UIs. So that's really changing a bit the, um, the skills that are required uh, to be a SaaS developer. But again, we have different profiles and they coexist, so that's uh, not, no single developer needs to know everything. Of course, it's easier when you know the full stack, but mm -hmm. as always, you can't always be a master in all of these skills. What's interesting with the, uh, the Salesforce platform, I think, is and the Salesforce developer community is that we have a lot of developers uh, in this ecosystem who are not necessarily developers um, from um, with a CS degree, for example, a computer science degree. A, a lot of them are actually people who are um, switching jobs. So uh, they could have been uh, employed in other sectors. They could have been already admins. So admins are, it's another persona for Salesforce ecosystem. It's the people who uh, manage the platform. They're essentially working with point and click tools. 
And uh, at some point, they want to evolve in their career and they figure out that uh, they're limited with point-and-click tools. Where, I mean, you cannot do everything. So they go into code and then they love it and then they become developers. So this is a very specific kind of developers. They they are very enthusiastic, but they also need to know the, to learn the basics. So that's the kind of people we're mm. also um, working with. Okay. I, I was wondering because we've had guests whose product and solutions are meant for developers. They have, Their users are developers, their clients are developers, the people signing the check is a developer uh, or an IT team member. Um, but Salesforce, there is so many more stakeholders. You have a sales team talking to sales, sales clients uh, about their needs, about their pain points. Uh, you have marketing uh, uh, clients as well and users. Does that make your work more complex or more simple? Because, uh, yeah, actually, that's the end of my question. I'm not going to start answering it. No, absolutely. You're right. Uh, the developers are not the buyers for Salesforce. Definitely. That is not the case. Uh, developers are brought to the table to enable and actually help business users reach their goals, but they're not the main stakeholders. They're not the key person making the decision. Now, I want to just get back a bit on this statement because there are a number of products. We're talking here about the core CRM uh, product, the customer relationship management uh, platform for which Salesforce is known. But there are a variety of products that we sell, and one of them, which is developer-first, is called Heroku. You may have heard of this. This is a Salesforce product. Some people don't even know that. Mm. But this is typically a product that is a uh, developer-first uh, product. Developers are buying it and are using it. And uh, so for the, for the biggest part of the product, yes, it's not a uh, developer-first product, but for so other parts like uh, Heroku, it is. And are you assigned to one specific product or solution or your 360? So my team is more uh, on the core platform, which is the base of the CRM. And that's the part where um, you basically work with uh, three products, which are called the sales cloud, which is the CRM, the service cloud, which is serving uh, use cases like um, call centers, uh, delivery uh, scheduling, and also um, communities which are uh, website for um, engagement from B2C, from business customers. Now, uh, we tend to do demos with Heroku as well because we, we just definitely need this product uh, to expand a bit the platform so we can shift a bit. But what my team doesn't do really is work with the other products. Um, like we don't uh, work with um, Tableau, for example, so much. We, we do have some interactions with them, but we are not the, the key team for this. There's a dedicated team on this other product. Yeah, I, I, I didn't actually know that uh, Heroku was part of Salesforce, but I, I, I've, I've been to the Salesforce tower like before and learned a little bit about it. And it kind of just feels like this, when you learn about how far reaching Salesforce goes, I, I, I fathom to even understand how any person can kind of comprehend on the, the overall direction uh, of, of such a large company. But Obviously, people do. <laughs> Obviously, not necessarily uh, the same people. Again, it's different, yeah. different customers, different companies. Uh, I don't think there's a single company that has the full product offering. <laughs> We're definitely using some of the bricks, but not entirely the entire uh, set of products. Well, I'm always really curious of is the the journey to becoming uh, an advocate because we have people that you know almost started off their their kind of coding journey as advocates or teachers and presenters we have talked to people that were just very into code and kind of uh ended up in here just for a passion of it what was your journey in this kind of advocacy evangelist 
world and, and how did it how did you end up here that's a fun, fun, fun question. Actually, I need to get back a bit to my, my career. So when I when I was a consultant, essentially what I was doing is running around all the time. And part of my missions were also involving training. Consultants were also doing trainings. So I delivered a bunch of training and I really enjoyed the human contact. That was, for me, a big shift compared to a developer world when you're sheltered basically uh, with your team, you're not uh, talking to customers, but being a consultant, you're always on the field talking to customers. And I really liked that. But at the same time, also, I really felt burnt out. And there was a point I had to talk to my manager and I said, look, uh, I really enjoy my job, but it's not sustainable. I've been running around the world. I think in in what, in, in, the, in about three years, I, I did 80 customer projects, more than 20 countries. I was really all the time on the road everywhere. And with a lot of pressure because of different projects, different settings, different industries, it's it's a great learning experience, but it's also something that uh, really burns you down at some point. So I, I said to my managers, look, I, you need to do something for me. I need to switch jobs. I, I would like to stay in this company. I really like it, but I need, an, uh, I need something else. And they created the job basically for me because they felt that they had this need to supplement the marketing teams, which were pretty much not technical and were kind of hitting walls when we were talking to developers. And they felt uh, I could be the resource that would kind of bridge the gap between uh, developers and them. That's how I got started. Super impressive. Yeah. It's very impressive, and I, I I love that coming from that that that, that teaching angle. But I mean, um, I, I, did it work? Did you experience less uh, less burnout as as an advocate or? different title same same <laughs> same because i mean there's gonna be a lot of travel a lot of different conferences appearing uh for for definitely as an advocate as well it's it's very different but one of the things really i enjoyed when i started becoming an uh an, ad, an advocate or an evangelist at the time is the relationship with people when you are a consultant your your time is money because you're getting paid for a service and people have high expectations. They've paid a hefty bill for your presence and you are the expert. You have to answer all the, all the questions they have. They gave you a big spec. You have to implement everything for a short duration. That's the thing. But when you're an advocate or an evangelist, you're here to help. Money isn't really mm. part of the deal. You're here to help. You're here to, to, here to bring solutions to the table, offer proposals. And you, people are actually more grateful in, in that scenario better than when you're being paid. And for me, that's a big, big change. I, I didn't feel the same pressure. Of course, there was a lot of work. It's not easy. I'm not going to say that. But the relationship with people was very different. And that was really a life changer for me. Mm. Yeah, we're, we're about to end uh, 2021. Uh, and I was wondering, did you, have, did you set goals for yourself for this year as an advocate? Or did you have set goals with your team? Uh, and did you reach them? Uh, what, uh, what were those goals? Yeah, that, that's something we all do in, in this company. Uh, we have something called V2Mom. It's a kind of a standard process. It's called Vision Metro. Oh, sorry, I'm not going to remember the, 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 the um, letters. V2Mom Vision, Metrics, Values, and yeah, something like that. Well, anyway, we have a plan that we build. We all build. Everybody builds the, this plan up from, uh, from base employee to the CEO, and we delivery on this plan. We, of course, revisit it during the year, but each year we do that. And um, for this year, obviously, it's, uh, it's, it's still uh, heavily impacted by the pandemic, so I didn't do that much travel. But um, we were focusing more on digital content, I think, like everyone in the industry. So it was a lot around uh, blog posts, live streaming, um, 
videos and our um, uh, documentation and demo building, essentially. And yeah, I think I'm pretty good for this year. <laughs> Although I would like to get started to get, to get back on the road, I think like everyone. Yeah, I have my first in-person event coming up nice. uh, in December, December in New York. So Very I was, uh, oh, wow. and it was like on and off, on and off. I wasn't sure if I was going, but my, my plane tickets are booked. And I'm just, I'm just hoping that, <laughs> that I get to, that I get to go and actually hang out with real people and get, get out of my bedroom. That is going to be an experience coming back to a stage. It's a very, very different experience. I mean, I'm tired of talking to my webcam, but talking to people on the stage, I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's such a, it's such a different shift. It's going to be, yeah, it's got to be really interesting because you know, I felt a lot more stress presenting in a webcam for the first few times than I did on stage. Absolutely. Part of that was because, like, uh, the conferences, often, some of them are live, but a lot of them you pre-record, you send them the video, and then they, they put it in and uh, pretend it's live. <laughs> Hopefully, we're not ruining the experience for anyone. But when you present on stage, it's natural. You make mistakes, you move forward, you can pause, you can do it. When you record it, you feel like it has to be just perfect. And I, you know, and you end up doing it 400 times, not really, but you know, multiple times. You, you're, you're stressed out by it. You're trying to edit it uh, in post because you've said the wrong word. You don't want to redo the whole thing. And, you know, but on stage, no one would know, no one would care. And, and probably the same in a video, but it was such a different experience. Absolutely. I'm a control freak when it comes to that. And I would say I'd spend at least 10 times the, um, the, the duration of the session just working with editing. And that's one of the key thing, I think, uh, with um, a live session. You don't have to take care of everything that is technical, uh, like with lighting, the, the, the audio system. You don't have to take care about post-processing. So you just have to make sure your talk, that's your key skill, is actually good and your presentation skills are good. But besides that, the rest you can delegate to some professionals, AV professionals. <laughs> That's yeah, cool. That's so true. So I true. think there is a, a few hours of uh, videos out there you know, online where uh, every 10 minutes I'm like, are you still there? Can you still hear me? <laughs> so that's my <laughs> <Yeah>. legacy. <laughs> Actually, I had a, a question for both of you because I was kind of looking around of developer advocacy activities and, and what's what's up, what's uh, what's new. I was wondering if you have one company uh, that you're looking up to that you're like, oh, I wish or I want to do that level of stuff. I really like how innovative of, or the kind of content or the approach they have. Is there anyone you admire right now out there? Go ahead. I have a... <laughs> Yeah, I have a, I have a, I have a couple. Pony code, obviously. Ah, that's, uh, that's the number, that's right. number one, of course. Lay your lay up and some fire. Well, I hear they've got a great webinar coming up too. Gotta to check mm -hmm. that out. <laughs> um, you know, I, I have a, I have a, I have a, I have a kind of abstract one uh, at the moment. So it's a small company um, called Aculus. And they're a secrets management solution. They started in 2019, so very small, but they're growing rapidly from from Israel. And they just had their conference over the last couple, their first conference over the last couple of days, which just blew my mind because I was like, okay, they're a couple of years old and they're already doing uh, conferences and they have a very heavy developer audience, um, you know, security developer uh, focus. And uh, I was just, uh, I, when I was sat to the conference, expecting to kind of get a sales pitch and I didn't got great content. The conference was 
very professionally run. And I think that kind of energized me to be like, okay, this is, we've got to do something like this because I mean, they immediately went that there was this crazy switch where they went from this startup that I was talking to, to all of a sudden, uh, I was nervous about emailing the guy or, you know, like they're a big company and the guy was on stage. And so, uh, that was a relevant one for me because I saw the power of perception that a good quality presentation conference can do that isn't, you know, tangible. Who knows how many sales they're going to make as a result of that, but how many secondary sales will they make because they now have broken the glass barrier of seeming like a startup. So shout out to Achilles for their uh, kickoff. That's a nice one. I didn't know about this one. And you, Philippe? Um, for me, uh, the one that I'm looking at right now, it's probably a bit bigger, but I'm looking at Twilio because I think they do a very great job at targeting developers. Uh, I've seen their messaging, which is very good. And I've seen the reception and in the developer community. And I think they have a really good positioning. Uh, it's definitely not too marketing-y, but it's also a great, a great fit really for the developer audience. That's really the one I admire. And sometimes I wish we could do things like that, just even at Salesforce, like focus more on the developers. So that's a little shout out there. But yeah, great skills. Yeah, and, and I was uh, watching Twilio onboarding. They made a little, uh, like a very simple video game uh, in order to onboard the tool, which is, well, not complex, but there is a fairly enough features to explore. And the, the gamification is nice. I mean, it's not the most innovative thing on earth, but just the fact that they did it and they did it well, um, it already put there above, uh, above water and above many other companies. Yep, absolutely. Getting creative and like making sure you're not like one of the other companies that just are, are talking to developers, but not really focusing on them, just trying to get their product being sold there. It's just uh, makes a difference, I think. Yeah. And, and these things aren't easy to do. You know, like uh, if you've ever had to do a you know, start of documentation or, you know, an, uh, an opening wizard, you may have like these fantastic ideas at the top, but these are big tasks that require a lot of thought. And then to kind of be creative amongst that uh, and to have the support from the company to do it. I think that's, that's uh, quite cool. I'm going to, I'm going to go check that out now, the game of location, <laughs> see, see what I can, uh, what ideas I can borrow from, here, <laughs> from this. That's actually a good question because when you start a, a project as a developer advocate, I feel like um, there are many uh, situations uh, when you need help uh, and you need resources within the company from different uh, roles. Um, is that your case, uh, you too? Like, do you um, have to engage your team, or are you working in your in your own little corner, doing your own thing? Like, what's the what's the part? Uh, how lonely your job is? Yeah, but that's a big change. I mean, for a previous company I was working for, it was a kind of a larger startup, but it was still a small couple, 200 people max. And at that time, we had to do everything, essentially, because there's no one else to help you. It's, it's really the, the startup spirit. You have to handle everything from graphic design almost to demo building to everything. But with Salesforce, it's very different. We have a lot of specialists. So when I need graphical assets, there's the graphic designers. Uh, when we need, uh, like, even gear for... Um, for like on-stage presentation, we have a team that are dedicated to that. Um, so yeah, we're definitely not alone. We have different product engineering teams. We have tech writers that can help. There's a whole army behind us that that's really helpful. But that also at the same time, because we're a large corporation, and I want to echo what was said in a previous uh, episode, uh, there are processes, processes, processes. So that's also the downside of being in a large corporation. You have 
uh, process, which involve a lot of people. And so when you want to move fast, mm. there can also be some uh, hindrance, I would say, just to be say the least. Yeah, I can totally see both sides of that, of, uh, you know, the double, double-edged knife there, okay. double-edged sword. Um, but yeah, I, 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 it's, it would be such a pleasure to have these uh, specialists around you. But, uh, you know, I've, I've always felt that one of my... <laughs> One of my strengths, at least in working with Gagarin, was that I was okay at a lot of things and not great at any particular one of them. So, you know, uh, I don't know how I would fit in in that, in that large company where, you know. Oh, that's my case also. I, I have a tendency to really, I want to be like independent in the sense that I, I hate to rely on other people and like be dependent on some other, um, someone else's timeline, for example. So that's... Mm. It's, it's still possible, but there are some things that require uh, you raising tickets and just praying that they reach out the right person. <laughs> Actually, I was wondering what's the, what's the perimeter of freedom uh, that you get uh, working for Salesforce? Like you were talking about conferences, and I, I wouldn't even know if uh, you decide by yourself the opportunities that you want to take or there is like a group uh, decision. How the, how, what's the perimeter yeah, for you? Uh, we have a great, great degree of freedom, to be honest. Now, one thing, however, we have to take into consideration is the fact that Salesforce, well, used to be, now with these two years, it's a bit different, used to be a, an event company. We have an incredible number of events. Uh, I'm, I'm talking with like dated numbers, but pre-pandemic, I think three or four years ago, there were about 600 Salesforce events a year. 600 across the world. What? Yes. <laughs> Now, those were reaching, reaching from the uh, incredibly large uh, Dreamforce event, which is our main annual event, 110,000 people in San Francisco, down to very small events like meetups. But wow. you, can, you, can, you can grasp the thing, the, 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 the size and, the, and, the, and the, uh, the breadth of this community is crazy. And so we have a lot of work. Uh, just to support the third, first party events. Now, of course, all of these events are not focused solely on developers. In fact, a very small portion of this is dedicated to developers, but still we have to be there and to support our, our, um, our first party events. Now, after that, we do have some free time and we can pick the conferences we like uh, based on the topics we like. But um, it's definitely not the, the biggest part of our activity. Uh, we have a lot of uh, first party events, really. That's the thing. Okay. Yeah, six hundred events. I just can't imagine uh, trying to even uh, get your get my head around that. No, but and honestly, I didn't hear about ninety nine percent of them because it's yeah, it's great. Sorry, sorry. Go no, for go it. for it. Go for it, Alexander. I I just wanted to bounce back on. Uh, okay, you you were an event company. So what's the official position now, and how does uh, Salesforce see the future in terms of uh, event and and advocacy on on in person advocacy? Okay, I can just talk for my little scale here. I'm I'm not like a big big director, so I'm not going to talk about Salesforce strategy. But what I can say is that we are kind of willing to get back. Uh, on physical events. It hasn't started really yet. There has been a small um, start with uh, our Dreamforce event, which is normally enormous. It locks San Francisco for almost a week. Uh, we did have a, a smaller event where uh, we did a lot of live events, but I think people are getting tired of this. And I'll try to move back to physical. We started just with this Dreamforce. I think we had 
uh, a bit less than a thousand people. And now we're doing to do another one uh, in uh, New York, also in December. I don't have the exact number of people who will attend, but it's becoming bigger, and we're getting back to our uh, to the size of our previous events. Normally, we had those those so-called tier two events, which are, would attract about ten thousand people uh, in different cities in the world. And that's kind of the things we're trying to get back to, but I don't think we'll be there yet. Uh, it's going to take a bit of time to to get back to a pre-pandemic levels. It is, and you know, it is. You still have to be careful around in-person events. It's something yeah. that I found. You know, I reached out to lots of people, like coming up and asking them the same questions as you know, are there events? I was trying to try and figure out if I could piggyback or organize some events with some other companies our size to. To kind of capture it, and even though you know it's allowed, even though there may be concerts going on, their companies don't want to appear uh, yeah. take it seriously. So they're so it's it's an interesting tightrope to walk, and one that we're starting to see events come back. But I don't think we're going to see the full scale, at least not until I mean, all going well. I still think we've got another year before I think we'll have this conversation next year, and then events be going out pending another uh, spread outbreak. Yeah. I've, I've stopped yeah. trying to guess or, or make predictions. I'm living oh, yeah. in the, I've, in I've the moment. I've been wrong every time. I've been wrong every time, yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's safe <laughs> to not to, to bet too much on this. Uh, but then again, this is uh, things are a bit different in the United States. That's really what I felt. Uh, they are not yet really concerned about the fifth wave that is hitting Europe. Because, uh, you know, our numbers in Europe, I think, are pretty bad. Um, so I think they still have a bit of, uh, I would say, expectations to get back to normal, but I don't think we're yet there in Europe. Uh, one thing I know, however, is, yeah, we're getting back to physical events, but there are also very stringent security measures like uh, vaccines required, testing required, masks required. So it's not like a regular event. There's a lot of precautions that are being taken uh, to ensure security of those events. Yeah, the, the barrier to kind of enter those now is, is, is another step that kind of wipes out that... Yeah. Uh, uh, and some of them are like invite only. Before that, we would kind of open the doors. A lot of them would be free and now they're invite only because mm. people are expected to basically submit the test first, get the results, and only then can they be accepted to the conference. So that wasn't mm. the case for, for Dreamforce, for example. So really tight yeah. security measures there. Yeah. I'm I'm curious now. So um Let's let's lighten the mood. Let's get away from the gloomy. <laughs> I'm stressing out. <laughs> but uh, going back to you, you've had a long journey in this, much longer than uh, than a lot of other people, decades in in this field. I, I'm curious to know for for the the youngins like me who are starting are uh, you know, coming through, still experiencing this. What's been some of the biggest learning experiences that you've had? through this what what's what's some kind of key takeaways that you could share with people like me that are that are kind of in this area that that you have found i think the thing that i struggled the most with was not not the technique because i i know how to code but the thing i struggled the most with was writing but technical writing like well done this is a mm -hmm. very hard skill to master and mm -hmm. english is not my my first language i'm i'm french so i'm a french speaker but uh, writing a proper uh, proper technical content in uh, in English, I felt was very hard. I was lucky enough to be working with a lot of uh, tech writers, so I learned a lot uh, from them because I think it's really it's really a, a really good job with very specific skills. And you can't just say I'm a developer so I can be a technical writer. It's not exactly true. You have to train a bit, and that's the thing I had uh, I think the most 
uh, effort to put in. And also, I think my presentation style really evolved with time, with confidence, and also doing uh, a couple of trainings. Uh, because of course, when you're you're an advocate, you're always on stage. But sometimes you do need to go back to the basics and do like a, a proper training with a professional. Like, a, uh, I, I think that's valuable uh, mm. because we, when we do practice all day long, we don't really look back at what we did. I mean, how many times did you watch one of your talks? Honestly, oh, I can't get through. I can't get through two minutes of myself. There's always there's always errors in my videos because once I've put them together, it's kind of like, I can't I can't watch this. It's horrible. And you that's know I mean? video. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. videos in like in a home context or in front of a, in a studio is very different from like being recorded on stage. And, Definitely. Uh, so I went through several times, several rows of this exercise, looking at past presentations on stage and like like watching my body language, things like that. And I think it's uh, it's tough to hear the, the initial feedback from a professional. You think you're like the master of it because you've done, I don't know how many hundred talks. <laughs> like mm. You say, okay, now I need to relearn most of it because I, there are some things I'm doing wrong. Is there any uh, specific resources uh, or a specific type of training that you followed that you would recommend? Um, well, it's going to be hard for me to, to tell you. Yeah, these are part of the um, training programs we get uh, as part of Salesforce. I don't know how public okay. they are. <laughs> okay, so internal resources. But uh, speaking coaches, they exist. Uh, and I was lucky enough to, to being coached by one of, them, one of the people who actually uh, are helping uh, TED speakers. You know, the conference mm. TED. Mm -hmm. So very, very impressive people. And I mean, it's in invaluable for uh, for for a speaker, a public speaker, to learn uh, about some of your flaws because nobody will ever tell you that. Uh, and you can actually improve the style of your presentation and even bring uh, content there more easily. And there are other things you can do also, maybe uh, around um, learning how to do proper storytelling, uh, building convincing demos. Everybody can do a demo, but building a convincing demo with uh, the right amount of storytelling, so not too much so that it distracts your audience from what you're trying to show, but enough so that it becomes memorable and people can stick to it. I think that's really uh, some of the things also you need to learn. That's really interesting. Yeah, we're going back to the, the presentations. I, 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 always, I always kind of see this, these levels when you go into conferences of kind of what you're there. And, and right at the top, I always admire the keynote speakers that get on stage with no slides and speak for half an hour and manage to, you know, everything's clear and get the point across. And I think when you get to that level, I think that's the, that's the top tier presentation level. When you can survive with no visual aids and the audience is engaged, then, then you're, you've achieved the speaking greatness. There's a secret for that. And honestly, it's kind of a, kind of a hard truth. It's practice. To deliver a mm. keynote experience like this, uh, you need to practice. And not practice three times ahead. You need to practice 20, maybe 30 times. So yeah. like, the words come there and you're, you're precisely timed. You know exactly what you're going to say. And in fact, you don't have your notes, but you have just a small confidence monitor somewhere in the room and you can see basically what you're presenting. And that's just enough for you to deliver your talk. But it's not like you cannot compare a talk you would give to like a meetup with a keynote because you never have time to prepare that much, for sure, <laughs> even if you're exactly. a great presenter. Yeah. And just and going back uh, a little bit too, I, maybe I just wanted to touch on the content writing side of things because I thought that was really interesting. Something that I definitely struggled with coming into this. And uh, we actually employed this year a, a full-time content writer, which is separate from advocacy. But uh, before that, you know, it was just me writing 
uh, blog post. It took me a long time to to figure out how to create engaging content to developers, especially you know not being too salesy. I've had many people be mean about my content on Reddit because it's uh, uh, Reddit. It's not known to be kind. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, but also, I mean. Uh, you know, no one likes it when you uh, hide advertisement. You know, you, when you hide an advertisement in a blog post, as in, you know, the the, the blog post isn't genuine. It's it's too. And that, that's what's special about our audience, developers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't fool them with marketing that has been hidden in another message. They will no. see it and they will like rip you off of this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but what 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 is you know? Is there a couple of tips? that you, this is an area that you really kind of improved on. What was some of the biggest difference if we go back 10 years to now that you, you experienced? So I think there's there are two levels here. First of all, I think what's really important is to have a proper outline and making sure you have a structure when you write your content. If you just jolt down your ideas as they, as they come to you, it will be very hard to, like, to have a, a proper structure and people will have a hard time to follow up. That's mm-hmm. one thing. Another thing is probably in, more in terms of style. Uh, like one of the key rules uh, they mentioned is avoid the passive tone, passive voice, sorry. Uh, that's something for us that is very hard when we're not native speakers uh, or writers. Uh, you have to turn your, your sentences in a specific way uh, so that they're not passive. I'll let people look that up because I'm not sure I can explain it, <laughs> but it's <laughs> something you have to practice because if you just write as you think, you'll use a lot of passive and it's not something that uh, readers will enjoy. And I think the last tip I could give also is try to be short, concise. Less is more. That's the saying, and I think that's something I really struggle with. Uh, if mm-hmm. you have more than a thousand words in a blog post, you're not helping anybody. It's gonna people are gonna drop off. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I have a blog post that's less than a thousand words. Writing less is actually harder than writing more. Really? Oh, absolutely, so. absolutely. And I want to dive into to topics it's kind of a reflection of my personality because you know you start off a blog post and then you'll you'll be researching and you'll find something interesting and then you you you've added 500 words on yeah, a tangent rabbit holes and rabbit holes <laughs> and then you drifted away from your main content and then you're gone you lost your audience yeah. and you probably learned a lot of things but that's more a, a kind of a almost a selfish experience you learn but the others maybe not so that's you can put the new cursor at the right level. <laughs> well, I used to I've, do a lot of, uh, of backpacking, and one piece of advice that uh, somebody once gave me was you pack everything, then you take out half of the things you've packed, you pack again, and then you take another time half of the thing left, and then you have the right amount of, of clothes and stuff. And I feel like I've applied that to blog posts. Like I write it all, I pour my soul out there, and then I cut half of the yeah. half the thing I restructure, and then I cut half again. And it's, it's like the same. It's like there is always way too much at the beginning. Vicious. It's always harder when you already have too much and need to cut down content. So that's the thing I think I, I try to learn in, in, uh, in the various uh, experiences I have is to try to get the right amount of content in the first go. Because, of course, when you have a lot of content you need to cut down, it's a lot of effort to rewrite and making sure it, it kind of fits together. Because when you remove parts, obviously, sometimes your story is broken. So. Wow. So you think it's, it's, it's easier to write a smaller piece of content and than it is to write a long piece and cut it back. So you, you... ideally, yes. I mean, what okay. if you manage to get your structure correct, correctly set up, it's easier to add stuff to it than to uh, subtract. That's really huh. the idea here. Yeah. 
Okay, yeah. I'm learning a lot. I'm learning a lot of this. I got I gotta research what passive tone is because I'm sure I'm using it. My blog posts are far too long. Well, it has to do with, with the way you position the verb in the sentence. So, but yeah, really make sure you follow, you check this out because uh, that, that's one of the key things. Working with a larger corporation, people have have been there before and they actually took the time and effort to write styling guides for you. Uh, yeah. And so. I mean, I don't, I don't think I can share it. It's not like a public resource, but we have like a, a huge document about, like, I don't know, maybe uh, 20 or 30 pages about style and tone for, for, for developer content that was being done by our documentation teams. And that's a goldmine because there are a lot of things about the way you present things, about the way you highlight certain words or not. It's, yeah. Wow. That, that does sound like it, it would be such a valuable uh, part. I of think there are certain resources you can find online. Uh, you'd have to search it, but I, I think people have, have done similar efforts and they made it public. Of course. We'll, we'll find them and then get them on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, I think I'm, I've got so much on my mind. I can't, I can't focus on, on where, I'm, where I'm at in, the, in my questions now. Uh, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be guard, uh, guardian of time once again. Uh, for me, I was curious because you were saying, Philip, that you've been listening to the to the previous episodes. I have to probably for another reason because I'm collecting uh, Mackenzie's uh, best sentences, and there are some gems <laughs> out there. But uh, but I was curious, maybe out of the previous guest, uh, which one you were surprised, or if you learned anything, like uh, what what any takeaway from the previous episodes. Ah, that's a good question. I, they are all so different. I mean, uh, maybe the one about open source. Uh, one thing I really enjoyed from, I mean, my the, going into computer science and software engineering is open source. I'm really attracted to this, and I'm, it's really part of my uh, the things I do for a living. I, I've been working with um, with open source companies in the past, and that's something that is incredibly valuable, helping people out and contributing setting them up for success and hoping they will also contribute back because sometimes that's the magic that happens. You help people and sometime later they will help you back. So yeah, definitely the episode on, uh, on, on open source, I think I really liked. With, uh, yeah. would, you, would you like to lead uh, advocacy for uh, open source uh, project at Salesforce? Uh, we have some open source projects for sure. Uh, they don't have their own advocacy teams. Uh, this is more like the, um, the people who are in, in the... Um, in the engineering teams who are promoting them because these are not really products, so we don't have advocates of them. Uh, but we're showcasing their words, works uh, from time to time, so we do have partnership with them. Okay, cool. Uh, Mackenzie, one, uh, one last question for our guest, maybe. Okay, so... Make it count. <laughs> Make it count. yeah. Okay, so I'm going to leverage, I'm going to lean on your uh, expertise on this one a bit and the fact that you have you have a lot of time to reflect on this. Where are we going with advocacy in the future? And what what's kind of the path going to be laid out? Where do you see this relatively uh, new profession kind of evolving? And what can we do as advocates to kind of push it in a, in, a, in certain directions or, or elevate it to, or, and move forward? That's a very, very vast question. I'm going to try to answer. <laughs> well, one thing I, I saw really as a turn, and we also is like uh, we, we are getting more into the streaming world. Uh, we are now uh, streamers more than we are advocates, kind of. And I, I wonder if if this is going to be uh, like another kind of uh, 
of, of jobs uh, of specialists that is going to emerge from mm. this uh, because yeah video and streaming is is really an entire uh, set of skills that we don't always have but in terms of uh, of technique and content um i i i think we've, we're going to continue a bit the same it's just uh, the, the formats are going to be different in the sense that we're going to do mixed physical and mixed remote events. I think that's going to happen more often. Uh, and I do hope that we'll, we'll get people to come to physical events because there's no comparison uh, on the degree of engagement. Making an event remote brings you scale in terms of numbers. You can have a lot of views, but the quality of the engagement has nothing to do with an on-site event, physical events. So it's always a matter of juggling between the quality of the engagement and the scale. So I, I do hope that we'll get more quality engagement in the, in the future. That's really uh, my, I have high hopes for this. That's brilliant. Good. I, 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 I set you up for a, for a never ending question there, but I think you, you <laughs> brought it down good. concisely perfectly. <laughs> yeah. And it's a, it's a very, very good uh, last question. Um, I think the both of you are going to be uh, out there uh, in the future. Mackenzie, uh, where can people find you uh, in person by the end of the year and uh, online, of course? Yeah, so in person, you can find me at the uh, Information uh, Security uh, InfoSec meetup in New York um, on the 13th of December. So you can come say hello to me there. So I'll be very excited to kind of meet some people. Uh, digitally, you can always follow me on Twitter at Advocate Mac. Uh, that's my handle for everywhere uh, and also on LinkedIn. And feel free to reach out with any questions. I'm always interested to hear from anyone. I'm looking forward to find out uh, which uh, gift uh, you're bringing me back from New York. So <laughs> don't disappoint me. <laughs> Philippe, what about you? Where where can people fi find you online and uh, where can they meet you uh, in person? Meeting me in person is going to be complicated. To be honest, I still don't have clear visibility on my agenda, so I cannot really commit to that. But online, for sure, I'll be all, all around the place. Um, mostly, you can follow me on, on Twitter, that's Philippe Ozil, and on GitHub, that's Pozil. I'm super active on GitHub. Uh, that's really where I spend a lot of time. So I'll be still working on digital content for some time, I guess. But I have high hopes that in January, February, I'm going to hit back the road, back on the road. Amazing. Well, if you release some cool stuff, we'll be happy to share with the community on our side. And uh, on my side, uh, bah, Mackenzie, you talked about it. We have a webinar coming up, Ponycode and Guardian, how original. Uh, mm -hmm. you, you would think that maybe code quality and code security have uh, some things related to each other, but uh, I guess we'll wait for December the 8th to find out. <laughs> And uh, I'm actually I'm organizing the AI uh, meetup in Paris. So if you're interested into artificial intelligence, we're we're meeting up uh, right now. We're we're the, it's open for uh, for um, invitation. If you want to come, share a piece of pizza and uh, hear some very technical uh, uh, talks about uh, uh, machine learning, it's going to be very cool. And everything is on meetup.com AI meetup Paris. So please uh, join us. Here we are. Thank you very much, guys. And uh, we're well, looking forward to see you again in a future episode. Uh, Philippe, you're always welcome. With pleasure. And, Thanks for having me. And uh, well, uh, as always, uh, leave us a rate on, uh, on we're on uh, uh, Spotify, we're on Apple Music. Uh, where else, Mackenzie? Uh, Google as a platform, Breaker. Uh, okay. I, think, I think everywhere. We have a... We, we, 
we have an upload distribute everywhere strategy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> our, our, our next episode is going to be our 10th episode, I think. So we now need to ask people for review. Like we're getting into the maturity age. Oh, so. yes. Nice. Yes. Looking well, forward to the... the word to my colleagues. So they know and they will be watching you, I guess. <laughs> yes, good. Excellent. That's the spirit. Thank you very much, Philippe. <laughs>